Howdy and welcome to the Homes for Hope podcast. My name is Drake Holtry and I'm the Western U.S. representative for Homes for Hope and your host today. If you're not aware, Homes for Hope is a building industry response to global poverty. Since our founding, we have expanded our mission to serve in over 20 countries and have had the privilege of investing over $1.6 billion in the dreams of underserved men and women through microenterprise development. Today on our show, we have the one, the only, Paul Evans, VP of Millwork at Builders First Source. Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you today. Drake, thanks a lot. I, I'm not sure I like the one and only. All, I, I, my mother always said that they uh, they broke the mold when they made me, but I, I think that was for a different reason than what you're thinking. So. <laughs> You know, uh, no comment on that one. I'm, I'm going to plead the fifth and, and just keep going here. Um, but Paul, sincerely, so, so great to have you. Uh, I'd love for you to, to share a little bit about your role at Builders First Source, how long you've been there, and what exactly it is you do. Uh, so uh, Builders First Source is kind of a, a culmination of companies. Uh, I started to work at a company called Bison Build Materials in Houston, Texas, back in uh, uh, 1981, uh, and then um, uh, moved on to a company called Lone Star Plywood and Door, which I had the privilege of, of having some ownership there. Uh, and then BMC, a company called BMC, bought Lone Star Plywood and Door, and then BFS uh, merged, bought, however you want to say it, uh, BMC. Uh, and in that time frame, we also purchased Bison Build Materials. So for over 40 years, I've only worked for one company my entire life because we own them all now. So uh, kind of a kind of a crazy deal. I've been in the industry about 40 years, been with BFS almost uh, 30. I'm on my 29th year. Uh, what I do here is I'm responsible for the growth of the millwork business uh, within our distribution uh, chain. So uh, that's my job. I also um, am responsible for the turnkey side of it uh, in the fact that I own 28 general contractors licenses around the country in 22 different states. Uh, so if BFS screws up on a job, uh, Paul Evans is the one that goes to jail. So just FYI. So I, I did not know the latter part of that. Okay, that's that's good to know. But uh, listeners, I will say I've been to Paul's office and there's this map of the United States on the wall that has all these little pins where his licenses are, where they might need to be renewed in some point, things like that. It is it is very impressive and I imagine uh, quite the logistical process. Am I right, Paul? It is a logistical process. We have a, a an attorney a full-time attorney that takes care of our licensing around the country, uh, whether it's a GC or um, a register for a city or a municipality. And then he has a, a, a staff of a couple of, of folks that, that also keep up with that. And I'll get a phone call, hey, Paul, you need to go get, do continuing education in California or Florida. Or, hey, uh, you need to fly to Michigan and take a test in Michigan because we missed a renewal or something. So it is a it is a logistical nightmare sometimes. So, yeah. Oh, man, I, I can only imagine. Well, um, y'all, I will digress. Uh, during the, the pre-meeting, Paul and I chatted, and I say we pride ourselves on being uh, a short podcast, a quick podcast. And Paul said, I don't listen to podcasts longer than 20 minutes. So we're going to, we're going to, if this goes long, it's because of me today. I'm just going to be honest. Um, but 
Paul, I'm going to I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to leave the stage to you and say, hey, it is uh, August 2023. What exactly is it that you think uh, builders and those in the building industry should be keeping in mind at the moment? So, um, you know, there are going to be a lot of changes uh, coming forward. Uh, I can understand the uh, the code side of it because uh, I was a member for many years with the ICC. That's the International uh, Codes uh, Council. Uh, I was a member of that for many years, uh, and they've got some some changes that are going to come down the pipeline that are going to make it a little bit more stringent to build a house uh, code wise. Uh, although most builders and most of the builders are going to be listening to this podcast. Uh, don't build a house uh, to code level anyway. They're far above code level, so it really won't hurt anything. Uh, won't hurt them uh, on that. Uh, the other side of it that's, uh, uh, to me, a little bit discerning, obviously, is the amount of time that we've had the uh, interest rate uh, hovering the 7% range. Uh, that bothers me a little bit. Uh, you can see a dip uh, in the in the sales of homes. Uh, the only saving grace that we have in the new home uh, construction business is that uh, everybody that has a resale house have pulled them off the market or are not putting them on the market because they know that if they sell that house, they can't buy a new one and get the same interest rate that they have. So if they have a mortgage at 2 or 3 or 4%, they sell that house and then they have to buy another one, whether it's a pre-owned or a new home, at 7%. They're looking at themselves going, why am I going to sell? Well, that's good for the new home construction side because there are no pre-owned homes to buy. Uh, And as we all know, there are more buyers than they are sellers right now uh, on both new home and and pre-owned homes. So, uh, uh, But that's a little concerning to me because I think that's going to be short-lived. What I mean by that is eventually there's going to be more and more pre-owned homes on the market because people are thinking, okay, well, this 7% is going to be the new norm, and so I'm going to go ahead and put my house on the market and buy something else uh, or rent something else. Uh, by the way, the rental market is, is climbing by leaps and bounds. Uh, that's both uh, multifamily and single-family rentals are, are climbing more and more uh, because uh, more people can't afford that 7% interest rate. They would rather, or not rather, they would rather buy, but they, they are renting. Uh, so that's that's a little concerning uh, to me. Um, the other side is is that uh, I'm on the distribution side of the the, the coin, and ever since uh, COVID, everybody knows we've had uh, supply chain issues, uh, and we are still seeing some of those in certain items. Uh, steel items, uh, for one, are still becoming an issue. Uh, I'm on the millwork side of the world, and um, we build a, a lot of, uh, of uh, steel doors. You know, it's a you know a six-panel steel door was common for a long time. Then everybody went to a six-panel or a paneled shouldn't say six-panel, but a paneled fiberglass door. Well, they moved back to the steel door because the fiberglass got hard to get and very expensive, and the steel was a little less expensive. But then we're going to go uh, a full circle. I talked about code issues. Well, now a lot of the codes are saying you have to have a, uh, a fire-rated door between house and garage. They've had that for years, but the fire rating is going to be a little bit different, which means that you have to have a steel edge fire-rated door, a steel edge metal door to pass that code. Well, in, in multifamily, a steel edge uh, a residential door was pretty common, but nobody used one in a, in a uh, single-family 
Well, now a lot of the single families are starting to buy it, so they're making them very hard to get. We're out six, eight, 10, 12 weeks on getting pallets of metal edge doors. Something so simple as that can really throw a kink into the entire cog. Um, you know, we can put any door in there for now, and then when we get to the final end of the house, the inspector is going to walk through the house and go, hey, you don't have the right fire door. I'm not going to give you a CO that can't close on the house. The homeowner can't get in. They, they can't get their final money. They don't pay me all the way down the line. So uh, so I see that as going to be an issue still that we are going to have some supply chain issues, mainly having to do with anything that has to do with steel. Um, so uh, maybe steel rebar because it hasn't come down much availability of certain steel products are hard to get so um, so those are the things I would look out for kind of a gambit across the board but I, I, I'm in a lot of meetings I'm in a lot of uh, uh, panels where they're asking questions about certain things so I've got to keep up with that part of the pieces of it so anyway that's where I am yeah plus you have all those uh, certifications you have to keep in mind yeah. so you're always constantly aware of what's going on only because um, you have to pass Paul, some crazy oh, test you know or something so I, I mean, exactly. I was in Michigan uh, four or five months ago. I was in Michigan, and, and, and uh, I mean, I, I now know more about basements than I would ever know. I mean, I'm from Texas, right? South Texas. We don't have basements here, and, and now I know everything about basements because of Michigan. So, anyway. Yes. You know what? Yeah, you probably know more about basements than any other guy in Texas because we don't have those. Um but Paul, so I'm curious, there was kind of like a, a, a circle of life vibe going on here, how you started with coding and you kind of came back to coding at the end of it. Um, what th- these code changes, do you see them revolving around a specific topic? I know you talked about um, like the, the, the fireproofness or something of a door leading to the garage. Like, is it is safety the main concern, the coding? Or is it, um, we've talked a lot about, uh, or we haven't, but you see a lot of things about the environment. Um, is that what the code changes are in regards to? Is there anything specific? Yeah, so the number one definition of a code is the safety and well-being of the inhabitants of the house. Uh, it gets a little geeky there, sorry. Um, so I'm the guy who reads the instructions on the VCR, and I don't read novels, you know. So anyway, uh, but the the um, mainly it's on energy level. They're trying to boost the energy level of uh, a home, uh, and they're doing it in, in other ways other than insulation or windows or whatever. Uh, they're changing the way you can frame a house. You have to do it a certain way so that they can get insulation into certain places. Uh, they're raising the level of the R value and the solar heat gain uh, for windows and, and doors for that matter. They always used to have a 1% fenestration deduction. What that meant was is that 1% of your fenestration in a house did not have to meet any code. And the reason for that, I wrote that into the code back in 2006. Uh, so that would allow someone to do anything they wanted to a front door, meaning you could have a, a steel door with single glazed glass and it would never pass any code, but that way it would be a decorative part. Uh, well, that's one item that's uh, going to probably go away. Uh, and so, you know, you've got to have a lot more energy efficient things and, and that's going to make building the house even that much more expensive. And for a first time home buyer, these houses are getting really expensive now. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure how the first time home buyer is going to be able to buy a house. So that's why I really believe the rental market is going to be even better and better because they're not going to be able to afford to buy a house, so they're going to rent. So 
Yeah, that that was honestly where my mind was going. Actually, uh, if you're a builder, what can you do about that? Like, you have to charge what you want to charge or what you need to charge, and so. Um, you, you, I don't know if you saw, but if you go on builder websites, many of them still have $10,000 off, $15,000 off because they're trying to compete. Um, but if people aren't, aren't buying new houses, what is a builder to do? Yeah, that's exactly right. They're not buying the houses. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, the single number one thing, and I'm by far an expert on this, but I can tell you that if you will go back and look at the recent history, which means uh, six months to a year, Whenever that interest rate bumped up, houses started stopped being bought. And it, it revolves tremendously around that interest rate. And if you remember what I said earlier, if that interest rate stays at seven, let's say for another six months, um, and people start realizing that, hey, this may be the new norm, um, they may start buying, but I'll bet you they won't. Uh, because they are so used to, for so many years, 4 and 5% was common that they're thinking that that's what it needs to be at 4 or 5%. And, you know, um, I mean, I, I, I uh, was even talking to my CPA, who's my oldest son, by the way, um, you know, about uh, some things. And I said, hey, you know, I said, I'm, a, I'm real excited. Uh, I'm, I think I'm just going to go ahead and pay my house off this next year. And he goes, Dad, why? And I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, your, your mortgage rate is 2.5%. Don't be an idiot. Hand me that money, and I'll make you five percent. And you know, and I go, wait, wait, you know, because I grew up in an era where no debt. You want no debt, right? And so the only, yeah, the only debt I have is my house. And I said I'm going to pay it off. And he goes, don't, you know. And so uh, I, I got uh, digressed there. But that seven percent, I think, is a if they could get it back down to five, I think we'd be in really good shape. But they won't because they're trying to 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 drive inflation down, right? So anyway. Paul, there's so many places I could take that, but but for the sake of our time, we're gonna we're gonna move on to the second second segment. But it sounds like uh, Paul it might be our first repeat Homes for Hope podcast guest. We'll bring you back in 12 months, see where interest rates went, see what you did with your house, and uh, we'll we'll go from there. But um, as as we transition to our second uh, next segment, listeners, um, we have a new new exciting uh thing that we're doing so uh here take a take a listen to what our executive director matt bear has to say hi there i'm matt bear executive director of homes for hope have you ever wondered if homes for hope doesn't build charity homes how do they alleviate poverty by partnering with the building industry well this october you have the opportunity to see for yourself by coming on the homes for hope vision trip to the dominican republic Join us as we meet some of the incredible entrepreneurs Hope has the privilege of serving and witness their thriving firsthand as they work hard to break the bonds of generational poverty in all its forms. For more information, including cost and dates for the trip, please click on the link in this episode's description. Now, back to the Homes for Hope podcast. Okay, and back to the Homes for Hope podcast. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed hearing from our executive director, Matt Bear, up there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, let us know what you thought about our little ad. Leave a comment on the Spotify or Apple podcasts, wherever wherever you listen. Um, but we're back with Paul Evans here of Builder First Source. And Paul, the, the second half of our podcast is uh, what I get really excited about, this second segment. And that is uh, to discuss... 
who it is that has invested in you. We are an organization that believes invest in investing in the dreams of men and women around the world through uh, biblically-based training and microfinance. And in that, we believe that there's no such thing as a self-made man. And so, Paul, you have, I think you've said over 40 years of industry experience in the building industry. And I would love to know, either personally or professionally, who it was um, that has invested in you to get to where you are today. Wow. So, you know, you, you prepped me at the beginning and said, hey, you're going to ask me that. So in the last 15 minutes or so, I've been racking my brain to make sure I thank all the people that have gotten me where I am. Uh, and I would say that there are four people that are probably, I, I wouldn't necessarily call all four of them mentors in the fact that, um, you know, I, I learned certain certain things from each one of them that made me, I think, the person I am today. Uh, first of all, was my father. Uh, I worked in my father's cabinet shop when I was very young, uh, and um, and he instilled in me uh, the work ethic. I think that that I have, and that to me is number one, the the worth et- ethic on it. Also, the passion for the wood part of it. You know, I'm in the millwork. Uh, uh, a part of the, our business and you know we're the largest uh, uh, millwork supplier in the country uh, we're also the largest lumber supplier in the country but we're really known for our millwork a matter of fact uh, this year is the first time that millwork has been more profitable than the lumber side uh, we only ha- we have 130 locations on millwork and we have over 500 on lumber but yet millwork is more profitable uh, for the first time ever uh, and that I'm really excited about that. But but he instilled the the wood uh, part of the excitement of wood, and he instilled the uh, the work ethic side of it. Uh, to me, um, you know, he would come rouse us up at 5:30 in the morning, and we were the first ones on the job site uh, by by no means. Um, the other side that he also did was he also uh, made sure that we had one day that we could do basically what we wanted and that was Sunday after church we always could do what we wanted to do Uh, was very important in my family my uh, grandmother Mamie Bell great great name by the way I think Mamie Bell uh, and and she you know basically instilled that you know every Sunday you go to church period that's all there is to it you go you sit next to Mamie Bell next to her and her uh, wolf-headed purse uh, my grandfather was a big hunter, and he shot a wolf, and she made a purse out of it. The ears were the handle. So it would sit there, and the snout of this wolf was sitting next to her, and I was sitting next to the wolf. So anyway, that's the story. There's got to be a yeah, sermon the in there somewhere, right? Paul. And so anyway, so you know, we would go, and then afterward, hey, what are you going to do today? My dad would always say, what are you going to do today? I'd ride my bike or I'd whatever. So that tells you right there, I was working before I even had a, could drive a car because I, my excitement on Sunday afternoon was riding a bike or whatever, you know. So uh, so that's number one. Number two uh, was a guy that I worked for that hired me. So I graduated from uh, Lamar University with uh, uh, an engineering degree, and I, I interviewed with uh, Fleur and Brown and Root and these large engineering firms, and they were not going to even pay me enough to pay my uh, money that I borrowed to go to school on, right? And so my dad introduced me to a guy named Phil Moody, and, and Phil uh, said, hey, uh, Paul, I'd like for you to come to work for us. We've put together a sales uh, 
an outside sales training program that we would like for you to kind of kick off for us. Uh, you, you know the, the building industry, you know the millwork uh, business, and that's the, the one we want to do. We want to put you through this. And, and I thought, you know, he was offering me as much or more money than these other ones, and I thought, you know, I can go to work for him, pay my student loans off, and, and then leave and go be an engineer, right? And I also had a job at night uh, for Southwestern Bell, which is a telephone company in, in Texas, uh, I had a job working at night as a draftsman, and when you graduate from engineering school, you can't take the professional engineer's test until you've been in the industry for at least four years. So I was working at night for Southwestern Bell drafting, you know, on a board, not a computer, you know, with a pencil and, and a, uh, you know, a, a, we, we called it an arm. It was a drafting arm. So I did that at night, and I was working for Phil in this training program during the day. And so Phil instilled on me, uh, you know, the customer aspect of our business. You know, uh, you always hear that customer is, is number one. And, and he instilled that in me, uh, that uh, his, his motto was whatever it takes. Uh, if it meant that you would go to the, to the yard and pick up 20 sheets of plywood and take it to the job site uh, because that builder needed it right then to get that job done, that was what you did. Uh, and he instilled that into me. Um, and so I always tell, and I wrote a book one time about, about certain parts and pieces of that, uh, and, and I wrote in the book that Phil taught me the mechanics of this business. He taught me how it was important to get these things done and have a list of things that you get done at the, by the end of the day, and if you don't get them done, you don't stop until they're done, right? Uh, but I had that work ethic from my dad, so this was easy to do, Right. So then I met another guy named Dave Andrasik. He was a sales manager for us. And Dave, he instilled in me the art of selling. This guy, you know, you've always heard the, the saying, this guy could sell ice cubes to Eskimos, you know. Uh, and and uh, by the way, the Guinness Book of World Records has the best sale ever. So it's a company or guy who sells a 10-cow milking machine to a farmer who has one cow and takes the one cow as the down payment. That's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Look it up. Anyway, this guy, you know, and, and this is Dave. He had the art of it. He had the art of building relationships and the, the art of taking care of the customer, but then taking the next step and knowing what the customer needed before the customer even knew that. And, and to me, that was the art of selling. And that was huge to me, huge. I mean, he taught me so many things about how to, to treat people uh, from the way he dressed every morning to the way that he changed his tone, not the message, but the tone depending upon the customer, uh, whatever, male, female, uh, affluent, not affluent, whatever, he would change the, the, the tone, not the message, but the tone. And, and so I learned so much from that. And then the last one on that list, uh, and has a go uh, last but not least, uh, is a guy named uh, uh, Bill Smith. And Bill, Bill taught me the educational side of our business, uh, meaning that I got to management levels and I didn't understand how to build a, a spreadsheet to, to make the data answer what I was trying to do verbally. Um, 
I had to put together business plans for, hey, we needed a new forklift or we needed a new truck or we needed a new door machine. And I needed to learn how to write a business plan. And he would teach me how to write those business plans. And then uh, he would teach me how to read a P&L. Yeah, I, you know, P&L, oh, what the heck, you know, I know I sell this for $100 and we made $5 and I made 50 cents of that $5. You know, that's all I knew, right? Uh, he, he taught me how to read those P&Ls, and then he encouraged me uh, to get uh, my MBA from, uh, from Rice. So I have a, 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 an EMBA from Rice University, and probably the best educational experience I ever had. Uh, Tuesday and Thursday nights and one Saturday a month for 18 months. It was the best 18 months I ever spent, ever. Um, so I, I love uh, I loved, uh, that experience so much so that I go back there every year and, and do a little motivational speaking for their graduates who come out of that. Uh, and, and it's just because it, it, was, it was a fantastic experience. We sit and talk about real business acumens every day. Uh, and, it was, and it was fantastic. It was a fantastic experience. So those are the four people who I, I think, and, and I, I, I would say Phil and Dave were probably the only real mentors uh, because I would shadow them. But, but I learned the ethics from Dad, and then I tried to be like Bill on the educational side. He was the smartest man I, I ever knew. I'm not kidding you. The guy could remember anything and, and, and knew he could glance at a P&L and immediately say, hey, why are you spending so much on, on diesel for the trucks? Where is that? I mean, what, what page is that? You know, so anyway crazy stuff but that's 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 the people that influenced me in my life and and uh you know I, I guess in a roundabout way i hate to say this drake but on another uh cast they asked me a similar thing and when i brought up mamie bell uh the person asked me um what do you think about mamie bell in your life and i said you know what she was an influencer in that she had a constitution i don't know if that's the right word but you do this every Sunday, uh, and you do this because we have got to pay back. And I never understood that for years, what she meant by that. And what she meant by that is, is that we do everything to the glory of God and Jesus Christ in our life, and, and you do this to pay him back for what he has done for us. And so I, I, I never thought about that until that person asked me that. <laughs> and I said, you know what? She's right. She was exactly right. And, uh, you know, here's a, here's a, a woman that uh, graduated from college and never learned how to drive a car. Couldn't, couldn't learn, not, never did, could not learn how to drive a car, period. We all tried to teach her, and she couldn't drive a car, period. Uh, but, you know, that's that kind of influence that, that hey, you've, you've always got to, uh, you know, I don't know, pay it forward is the right word, but pay back, I think, is, is better than that. And, and if I have something, can share that with someone, then that's what I need to do, period. So, anyway. That's so good, Paul. I Honestly, I, I was thinking similar when uh, you said you had four people you wanted, you wanted to go over. And as you were saying your, your father's name as well as Phil and Dave and Bill, I was like, hey, there's a fifth in there. There's, there's a fifth you touched on that uh, invested in you quite a bit. Um, and that, that would be your grandmother. And so I love that you were able to share that little tidbit with us for the end. Um, Paul, we 
there's a Paul Evans out there that we probably lost after the 20 minute mark, but I'm still going to ask you a, a follow up question. And I've got, a, I've got a, a plethora of questions to ask, but, uh, anywhere from that you wrote a book, who knew that? Um, and then what exactly is a draftsman? Sorry about that. But the question that I'm going to ask that I'm choosing to ask in this, um, is work ethic seem to be a huge part of what each one of um, these men, as well as to a degree your grandmother, um, invested in you with. And so what would you tell a leader out there that might have some employees working for them um, and there doesn't seem to be high work ethic? How would you encourage that leader to encourage their subordinates um, instead of just cutting rope, how would you how would you encourage them to kind of cultivate that work? Yeah, so so lead by example. Number one, uh, you have got to have that lead by example. If you're in a meeting and you've got some underlings uh, in the meeting that you're managing and that other people are managing and that they see you, uh, set goals for yourself and meet those goals on time or before. And, and make a point of saying that all the time, saying, hey, I've got these four things to get done and I'm going to get them done by Tuesday. And then send to the group on Monday afternoon all four of those things completed. And what that does is that shows everybody that, hey, this guy, he, he does what he says and says what he does. And then hold those same people accountable for their action items. Uh, and don't come down on them when they don't do it. Ask them what you need to do to help them meet their goals that they have set. And oh, by the way, you notice what I said, that they have set. It does no good when you say, hey, you got to get these four things done. No, they've got to have ownership on it and always make it their idea for those goals. I, I, I you know, I keep going back to this because I, I remember, I remember that the, the last book that I wrote was a, a book called, it's called uh, Life's Lost Art. Um, and, and it's the art of true customer service. Uh, and I always say that listen enough for your mind to be changed. And so if you listen to people, they will tell you how they need to be heard or taught to be able to have their mind changed on something. And if you think somebody doesn't have a good work ethic, it's because you didn't listen enough to them to figure out a way to teach them to have that better work, work ethic. How did, what's the old saying say? It was maybe they'll say, God says he gave you two ears and one mouth, right? Listen twice as much as you talk. I can hear her say that right now, you know. So uh, anyway, that, that's what I would, that's, that's the way I do it. Uh, when, I, when I have some young managers or young employees, because I, I mostly talk to manager people now, manager level, uh, and I have young managers who don't seem to have that work ethic, always seem to be doing something else other than what they should be doing. And so I sit them down and I, we just talk until I, I hear the th- thing that clicks, you know. Uh, salespeople. A lot of salespeople uh, are not motivated by dollars like we used to be many, many years ago. So you find out uh, this guy, I'm talking to the sales guy the other day, and I, I wrote an email to his sales manager saying, did you hear what he said? He told you what he was motivated by. And the guy goes, well, what do you mean? He needs to get his sales up. He's motivated because he's got an old bass boat and he wants a brand new one. And he said, well, what the heck does that got? I said, you figure out how much this bass boat that he wants costs. And then you figure out, you break that down, and you say, hey, look, you know, if you sold this many more product every day, 
that would equate to this dollar figure. It would mean nothing to him. Then you would say, but this dollar figure every day adds up to this much a month, which is exactly how much more you need to get that new bass boat, right? And he goes, unbelievable. Three months later, he called me and said, you are not going to believe this. And I said, the guy's going to buy a new bass boat. Yes, he's got to get out. So anyway. You know what? I, I, I hope the guy that that conversation happened with, I hope he listens to this podcast. You should pass that over to him when we publish. Um, well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, seriously, we're going to have to have you on again. Got so many questions over here, but it was such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for your support of Homes for Hope. And uh, listeners, I hope you had a blast listening to some of Paul's stories today and that uh, you are encouraged to invest in those around you even if it's just investing in them so that they can then go get themselves a bass boat. Until next time, this has been the Homes for Hope podcast. <laughs>